This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. I'm Roisin Ingle and you're very welcome to Back to Yours, a podcast where I knock on the doors of some big names to tell the story of their lives through the houses they've lived in. Hi! Hey, how are you? There's Jack. Hi Jack, can we come in? Very fierce guard. Yes, please come in. Thank you. Tara Flynn is a Cork woman, a comedian, actor and writer. Her books include Your Grand and she's also an activist. One of her sketches, if you haven't seen it, is called Racist B&B, where she skewers racist attitudes in Ireland. And of course, in 2015, she told her abortion story and became a key figure in the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Her play, Not a Funny Word, about her experience with abortion is, in my view, one of the most important pieces of theatre to ever come out of Ireland. Tara is what you call a good egg, a funny woman with a giant heart. She talked to me about growing up outside Kinsale in Cork, about her life in London and about the joys of living in a small city centre apartment in Dublin with her husband Carl, her dog Jack and her cat Buffy. This episode is full of cat moss and here it is. Back to yours with Tara Flynn. Tara, thanks for letting us into your home. Thanks for coming. Can you give us a little mini tour? Okay, I can, because we can do it from right here. Okay. Basically two rooms and a bathroom. And uh, we're lucky no one's used the loo in the last while because there's a fan in the bathroom that goes on for about two hours. <laughs> and it takes over all of neighbourhood life. It's, but, it, but it sucks the moisture out and that's a very good thing. So it's a, it's a one bed flat uh, that I live in with. Uh, you can probably hear the dog and the cat. There's some cat moss in the background. And my husband, Carl. And we're very lucky. We're in Dublin 8. We absolutely love the area. We're newly, I was here in the late 90s. I've come back and it's it's a very lovely place to be. We're very lucky to be able to live in Dublin at the moment. So, uh, yeah, that's the mini. The mini tour is there is a balcony. <laughs> OK. And I can reach the fridge from here in the living room. So it's cosy and I love it. <laughs> Excellent. You used to live across the road from RTE, which is very handy for work. It was handy for Carl's work. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't worked in RTE in a while, except the odd time with uh, Colm Morrigan wants a word, which is a lovely, lovely job. So be into the radio centre for that. But sure, I have the 145 from the Keys here. So it's as good as being across the road from RTE. Excellent. <laughs> now, let's go back, back, back into the... I was going to say miss the time, but you're not that old. So. I am, I'm 50. Okay. Let's go it's back brilliant. into the miss the time. Brilliant, thank you. I'm going to claim it. If I've lived it, I'm going to absolutely milk every year. Back to Cork-like. Yeah, back to Kinsale. Yeah. So, what um, was that house like? And we'll keep that up. Obviously, I can't sustain it, sorry. That was very good, I have to say. Usually people make the awful mistake of thinking Cork just keeps going up all the time. And that's when people, that's when people get hurt. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, the thing about Cork is it does go up, especially if you're being demonstrative, but it always comes back down. Always at the end. comes back down. Oh, that was bad, but yeah, I'll that get was there good. at the end. Okay. That was Thanks. great. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in, I always say Kinsale as a point of reference, but I've been the eternal Culchi because I grew up outside Kinsale. So I was a Culchi even in Kinsale. Then when I went to college in Cork, went to UCC, I was a Culchi because I was from Kinsale. And now in Dublin, of course, being originally from Cork, I'm, I'm a Culchi, like to the max. I'm very proud of it. Do you find that word culture offensive, Tara? No, I don't. I embrace it. I love it. Um, I <laughs> yeah. sometimes use it and I feel like it's a bad thing to say. 
That's your Dublin attitude. <laughs> That's your terrible Jackie attitude. Hope you don't find that offensive. No, uh, no, it, it, it's like it's it was a great place to grow up, but because we were four miles outside Kinsale, which doesn't sound like a lot, there was no public transport. So until my sister and I were old enough to cycle in by ourselves, we had very little independence. Okay. Now there was a huge. This was a really old house, so it had a huge garden. It was a really old house, and the reason Mum and Dad were able to afford it when they were newly married was it was absolutely falling apart. There was no electricity. There was no running water. Mum is a story of when I was a toddler and Sarah, she was like eight and a half months pregnant with Sarah. They had just moved into this house and it was great because it was the idyll. It was like, there's going to be, oh, imagine we'll do it up and there'll be fruit trees and, and we can have animals. And it was like, yes, and that is true. And over time, those things did happen. But initially we lived out of the kitchen and there was mum going eight and a half months pregnant, sort of a mile up to the neighbor's land where there was a spring to bring the water back. Yeah. So it was that rundown. Um, and it was uh, basically room by room. It got done up. But we had a telephone line. Not everyone did at the time. Yeah. So the neighbours would come if they needed to use the phone. There was a bit of that. That was starting to change. And it was still the days where you had to, for certain, like around Kinsale, you could direct dial. But for broader West Cork, which is where all the relatives were, you had to call the exchange. <laughs> but we had a, we had a phone, so like we were the we were the cool kids, and we were ahead on technology. And what about did you have your own bedroom? You Sarah and I had a shared bedroom, and that was the other thing. There was eventually a guest bed. There were three bedrooms. Like it was a really big in terms of the footprint. The house was big, but it was three bedrooms. There was a, what we called the guest bedroom, but it was the last thing to ever get done up. And I think that happened when I was eighteen. <laughs> and I think yeah, no, it must have been seventeen. Because before I moved out, I moved into that. I said, please, can I move into that room? So Sarah and I could have our space. My sister and I have our space. And it was finally reluctantly agreed to, so long as I would hop it if ever someone was staying. So what kind of house did your mum and dad run? Like, was it a strict house? Was it a very free and easy or what was the... No, no free and easy. Free and easy it wouldn't be. Dad was very strict. Um... But like we had, we were really lucky. We had, over the time, we had all kinds of different animals. Mum was the real, the real quintessential homemaker and she was a stay-at-home mum and she, um, like she grew all the vegetables. So we really did learn about living in the country. We weren't farmers by any means. Dad worked for basically a bottling company that was owned by Guinnesses. So he was going up to Cork every day to an office, but we were, we were living very country life but we didn't we didn't have a farm ourselves but because we had some fields I think it was seven acres in total which is massive um but not massive to a farmer <laughs> but every now and again we'd like loan the fields out or to to a neighbor or whatever and then once I remember we had three cows with three cows for a bit like it wasn't wasn't farming they were laughing at us the farm because we knew so many farmers all around us <laughs> especially through the phone thing. Um, <laughs> it was like, we knew they were laughing at us, but we, you know, we'd get a goat and uh, <laughs> see if we, we couldn't ever catch her to milk her. So like she, she didn't end up staying long. She was adopted by, I think, a German family down in West Cork. Not, not a euphemism. She really was. We <laughs> met them. Like it wasn't, yeah, she's gone down to West Cork. Mm. <laughs> she's really happy there. So, you know, this thing about Irish mammies and there's a whole yeah. stereotype about it. Would, would you say your mum fit into that kind of thing or was she yes and no she had lived in Toronto for five years between the ages of 15 and about 20 and then she was working in Shannon Airport that's how she met dad who was from Clare he was working in Cork 
and she was working in Clare and then he gave her a lift uh, from Doris, which is where she was from, up to Shannon and because his dad was living very near Shannon at the time. And uh, and the rest is history. The rest is flintstery. <laughs> um, but uh, so that was... Um, She'd got some fancy notiony ways. Had she she been had away? slightly notiony ways. In fact, she'd say things like, because at the time, somewhere like Toronto would have been very far ahead of, of Ireland in terms of services and things like that. So she'd say things like, uh, oh God, you know what I'd really love now? I know it's not possible, but what I'd really love now is to get a pizza delivered. And dad would go... It doesn't exist. That's not that's not a real thing. Go, no pizza, you know, like a big round disc of dough with stuff on it. And then they come and they bring and I was like, Mary, just don't say that in public. Like no one will no one believe you. <laughs> so there was a bit of that. And also that's where my I've spoken about this in my own podcast, but my messed up accent comes from is we were the kids going into school and saying things like trash and <laughs> aluminum and so uh, so it was a very Cork upbringing but there was also a little bit of a, a tinge of Canada sneaking in But was she an Irish mammy as well? Was she was an Irish mammy as well Yeah there was socks darned uh, wooden spoon threats yeah yeah very rarely used but a little tap to the back of the legs I do remember the odd time the sting of the wooden spoon very 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 odd uh, time um, yeah and Christmas cakes and Christmas puddings all that sort of stuff Um and because she'd grown up in the country, mum had grown up in the country, it was all about you, you reused everything. You you made stuff from scratch. I remember at one stage I went to a friend's house. That was a production going to a friend's house in Kinsale. Yeah. Had to be arranged weeks in advance because we'd have to be picked up or by the time we were old enough to take the secondary school bus or whatever, you had to be back at certain times. And, and if you weren't on it, there would be hell. So... It was it was a real production going to stay with somebody uh, or or even stay in till six o'clock or seven o'clock after school. But having tea at someone's house one time and there were crispy pancakes like from a packet. And I was going, these are amazing. These they are amazing. They are amazing. They are amazing. Can I chime yeah. in too? Thank they you. are amazing. But going home saying, they're these things and you can get them in the shop. You know, the shop we go into, same shop, like Super Value or whatever it was at the time, uh, uh, goods or something. And I said, well, you can actually get them like in town. You can get them and you can, we could, we could get them. And she was like, no, that's that. No, it's not food. And we were like, we felt like now I look back and go, what an amazing yeah. start that she gave us and all that extra labor and work and, and knowledge she was giving us. But we wanted the pancakes. No, can we... Freezer section, please. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Blacks, sponsor of Back to Yours. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Discover your favourite flavour from the range, which includes 70% cocoa, roasted almond, salted caramel, sea salt and mint. Do you remember growing up thinking, I want to get out of here? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really wanted to get out of, of small, small places. Not that Kinsale wasn't a brilliant place to grow up and I still go back anytime I can. Mum is still there. Yes, Buffy. <laughs> um, that's Buffy the cat. Um, it was quite a lonely place to grow up. Um, I think once, once we got the independence of the bike, being able to get into town, that really changed things. Uh, there was a lot more autonomy then. It was quite lonely and I was very close to my sister, but that meant we were often fighting. When you're very close with and it's just you and your sibling and you're all the company you have of your own age or thereabouts, you you often fight. 
made us super close. Like we don't have to, to, to you know, explain anything to each other now. We've got almost a telepathy. But it meant that we would spend a lot of time on our own as well. And But we, the neighbours, there was a kind of a stream that ran around the edge of where our fields ended. And the neighbours had, a, there was a wood, Ballantubber wood. And one or either or both of us would feck off into the wood <laughs> with a dog or a cat. There isn't a picture of us growing up that there isn't a dog or a cat draped somewhere. Um, and the dogs were brilliant because they'd come with us. And uh, we'd go off up the woods and just make up stories and just have a little adventure on our own but also cool off come back yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah so that sense of wanting to escape then did you, yeah. was your first escape into Dublin or was it going to the to Cork, Cork to study yeah, and, UCC yeah. that was that was great because it was it's brilliant to come back to um to somewhere where everyone knows everything uh, but that you, you know, for two days and then you're gone again and yeah, nobody yeah. knows anything. And where anything. did you live then when you went to Cork? I lived with someone else who went up from Kinsale. Hello, Jean. Um, we shared a flat in Sunday's Well. And uh, this would have been the first time you lived out of home. First time we lived out of home. What are your memories then of being this sort of independence from having a quite a, oh. I wouldn't say closeted necessarily, but you. No, you know, we were quite self-sufficient in a right, weird way, yeah. but we didn't have as big a social life as other or kids. Or that independence maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, once we got the bikes again now, that was oh, yeah. the key. The bikes were the key. I'm a big fan of a bike. I don't have one right now. I'm actually I'm on the market. I'm in the market for a bike, but um, oh, it felt so cool, so independent, so cool. Started dressing differently and shopping in secondhand shops, and I felt like I could really be me. I felt like any preconceptions about me were gone, so I could really just be me. I ended up quite soon busking uh, every weekend with a guy called Mark. Started with my flatmate and another friend. We went down one Friday night and we're just, in fact, let's throw down a hat and let's see if we can get some money for the weekend. Um, uh, and we did, we did. <laughs> and and then there was this guy there called Mark and uh, he was going, God, those harmonies are cool. Do you want to come and play next week? And I was like, yeah. So we did We were for a couple of years and then we started bands together and did all sorts. And also Cork being so small at the time, You'd end up doing backing vocals in some recording studio because someone would just come down and say, we've got the studio till 2am, will you come down and do some backing vo vocals? So it was just, it was it was a mad thing. But that was when I really knew as well that I wanted to perform. It just sort of started to happen. It was a big enough place. It started to click. Um, and then straight to Dublin as soon as well, I Well, that was it. Whereas Cork then got too small for you then. And did you think we it, needed bigger? It wasn't that place. I wanted bigger. I loved Cork. Yeah. But although that was late 80s and it was a very depressed place at the time, it was very different to what it is now. Um, absolutely loved it. Had such a great time going to college there. Uh, very fond memories of UCC, very fond memories of the city. But it was, there was no work to be had. There was hardly any to be had in Dublin, but there was more. And and I went up, I ended up signing on and then signing off whenever I got even a, a stage management gig up in, up in Dublin. Do you know what I've always been curious about with the Cork thing, this superiority thing, you know, thinking that they're the centre of, you're the, ye are the centre of yeah. the world. Just yeah, what you're looking at. <laughs> where, yeah. where does that come from? Can I, you give me that and explain to me? I mean, I, well I think that is resilience. I think that is um, having been, uh, it was, it, there were so many ways in which Cork has been shat on through history and right up and up to and including the 80s and the closure of Fords and Dunlops and so many people being made redundant at the one time. Shops closing, every, it was just grim and grey and but the people were still incredible crack that sounds almost 
glib or sort of patronizing. I don't mean it like that. I, it was just an incredible place to keep its own spirits up. So I think then any sort of offhand remarks about ye thick culties was like, no, we're going to stand up and say that's not, that is not true. Um, we're getting on with things that are really tricky and really tough. So, like, I can't claim cityhood. There, people will be listening, going, "Shut up and cock oh, yeah, yeah. But I am very proud of my home county. But I think there's a bit of that. I think often that sort of superiority complex is actually is just self-esteem, healthy self-esteem, which is read by an Irish audience <laughs> as, uh, as what, "What's wrong with you?" Yeah. Which is also a really do self-esteem. Don't get, don't get too far up yourself now. Like, you want to rein that in. Yeah, so yeah. Just off. No, 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 no. Especially because I, I started trying to look for acting work or acting uh, classes or like there was no way I could have afforded an acting school, but there were classes. If I did, um, if I did a part time job or something like that or a gig came in, I could I could afford acting classes in places like the Actors Workshop, which was on South William Street. Um, and you're meeting loads and loads of people from all over the country then. A lot of people come to Dublin to to pursue or used to it's becoming unattainable for people that's making me really sad because it was such a melting pot and yes you'd have to live in a grim bedsit but you could make it work you could make it work and just um and then I signed off I think I started getting enough work to sign off completely around 94 and uh and and then I started to be able to work to save and people can't do that at all now. It's, it's unattainable. You could actually start to make a living. You could start to make a living. You'd have to. Now, I lived in a one bed. Yeah, like that's a, what I was going to ask you. So did you live in a few places? A series or did you of find, bedsits. Yeah, tell me about the bedsits. <laughs> the now. bedsits were incredible. <laughs> they were actually, I have really fond memories of them. I've, the very first one I found was in Ranelagh. It was on Beechwood Road. So beside where the Lewis is now, there was no Lewis then. God, was they were horse drawn. Ranelagh was full of them. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was full of them. It was full of them. Ranelagh and Rathmines were yeah. the two places you sort of started your search if you moved to Dublin. Because you, you knew you'd find something. Um, and it was a place that was, it was a single bed um, and one of those little, uh, those little uh, two, two ring yeah. stoves with a little toastery oven thing underneath and a gas meter, uh, sorry, an electric meter with 50 P's. You had to have the 50 P's for it. And uh, it, it was actually a really lucky one because it had heating that came on between six and 11 at night, which was... Separate to the meter. Totally lush. That was luxury. Yeah. Uh, but like no telly. So I listened to loads of radio, read books and... Do you uh, remember what the rent was? I think it was £22, which was a fortune because the bedsit I'd had in Cork, which after I had the share, I moved out by myself and it was it was £16. So £22 was Dublin extortion. <laughs> um... And actually, the, but the Dublin one was so much nicer. You know, the extra six quid went on niceness. There was a view out to a tree in somebody else's garden. The view on in the uh, Cork one was onto Mary Street and there were bars on the window. And you'd often hear lads coming out of the pub and just pissing on the window. You think, <laughs> oh, is it raining? No, it's, it's piss. Um, and then there'd be chip wrappers and stuff in it. Yeah. And look, you was right in the centre of town. Like, couldn't have been, I never needed to take the bus. Saved a lot on transport. But yeah, so that was the first bedsit. As the, a lazy person, I look back on my bedsit life as quite a nice thing. Because you didn't really have to go, like, you didn't have to go very far to do anything. Yeah. Like, the toilet was just there. That's right. The, yeah. You the might kitchen. have to queue for it. But it yes. was there. Yeah. It was right there. And exactly. like, that was again, a very lucky one. I only shared the toilet with one other person on that landing. That was very lucky. I mean, listen. Yeah. 
I didn't know I was born. <laughs> but the, it's kind of sad to look back on that because... It's the same place now you if you were talking about rent. It doesn't exist. It no, doesn't exist. It doesn't exist or it exists but it's been charted up a tiny bit. It's the same space and yeah. it cost you, it, you prohibitive. Like it, lots yeah. of people couldn't afford it. Yeah, just, and that's, that's just mad. It is mad to me that you can't... Like back in those days, and it does look like I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> horse-drawn milk, milk, creamery trucks. But, but, but back then... Like I was in the arts, which was a fecking huge risk. And I managed to make it work, but I managed to make it work and then start to save. Which is incredible. Incredible. I mean, even before, like there, there were there were moments where I was earning a lot from from what I did. God be with the days. But there were, they, those moments did occur. But even before that, I was able to start saving. If I was prudent, if I was careful, I was able to start to save. If someone had, if if two people had regular incomes, They'd have a holiday and all those things would, would be, they wouldn't even have to think about it. And now those things are, two people working all the time are struggling to make rent. That's bonkers to me. Something's wrong. Something's very wrong. And when you went to London uh, as well, I suppose it was accessible to you in terms of money and being able to live, to try and be a performer. You could do yeah, that too, but just, harder, I'd say. Just though. about. And because I, I did own somewhere here, I let that out. Um, like you were able to save up for an apartment. When you were working in, in Dublin. In Dublin, yeah. yeah. No, not in London. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it was a lot no, more but you know, when you were, that's what, just to so, show that you were actually able to live and oh, yeah. save for deposit and get yeah. on the property ladder yeah. and all yeah. that work. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, which became tricky then as, uh, <laughs> as, as income went down. That became tricky. So it's sort of like people go, oh my God, yeah. I can't get on the property ladder. There are also pitfalls there if you've got a job that has moments of good fortune and moments of lesser fortune. Um, so that's something to, I think, when people look back and say, oh, it's great you were able to get in the property ladder. Yes, I was. I was very lucky at but certain staying points. staying on it was Staying tricky. on it is tricky and is, is needs management. Mm. You know, needs to be constantly attended to. So, And what um, kind of place did you live in in London? Was This is London. about you getting big breaks and trying to get onto the next level of your career. Was yeah, and, of- and it isn't even about big breaks. It's more about, I remember Darrow Brian saying long ago, because he moved to London in the sort of early, very late 90s or early 2000s, but we used to talk about the fringe and say that the fringe was comedy, f- comedy, what was it? Comedy college. So the fringe was comedy college because you did the same show every night. You did slots every day. You're, you're really working you're honing hard. everything. You're honing everything. Yeah. You're getting better. And even if your show isn't a big hit, you're still, you're doing it for six people sometimes. You're doing it for two people some days. They say the average across the fringe is an audience of three. And that's even when you factor in the 600 seaters that are selling out every night. The average audience attendance across the fringe is three people. So you're very often in that end of things. But that doesn't mean you don't learn an awful lot. But I remember Dara saying, yeah, Edinburgh's Comedy College, London is finishing school. Like you're playing all different kinds of audiences. It's not a a cultural event. (laughs) It's just loads of different clubs, loads of different people from loads of different backgrounds. And yeah, so there was part of me as well that just wanted to have done that, to get as good as I could at what it was that I was doing. And to go into bigger rooms with bigger auditionees. Honestly, there was someone who... um, was involved in my management at the time who told me that I shouldn't go because of my age and because it was very competitive there. And I went, well, you've just said the wrong thing to the wrong person because <laughs> now I'm definitely going, <laughs> even if that's really stupid. But so there, 
I lived first with a friend to just get started. We shared for only a few weeks. Then I had a dog, the dog that predates Jack, a dog called Oscar. So myself and Oscar were on our big London adventure. But that meant that my options for renting were very, very <laughs> narrowed yeah. down. That made it kind of good because I'd go into a, I'd go to a locality. I went to Muswell Hill because I kind of knew it. It was also a little bit cheaper at the time because it doesn't have a tube station. So when somewhere is only served by buses, it brings the prices down a little bit. And I knew it because my sister had lived there in the 90s. So I kind of went, I'll just see what there is. And I went into a, a local letting agent and I just said, um, what have you got for X price? And they went, here you go. And showed me like 20 A4 pages down in front of me. And I said, and what have you got that take dogs? Takes dogs. And they took 18, <laughs> 18 in the boy and said these two. But there was a lovely flat up over a shop um, that took dogs. And they said, oh, you just need to steam clean the carpet if and when you move out. Uh, agreed to do that, moved in there and ended up getting married out of that flat. And so how long were you there altogether? I was there five years. Wow. Yeah. So it was really home. It was really home. Yeah. And yeah. you met Carl there. Met Carl and then he ended up moving in. So the last, I think, two years of living in London was with Carl in the same flat. Yeah. And that made it more manageable as well. Was so just... what are your memories of that? Because like falling in love with somebody and having this home and Muswell Hill and was it was it quite a romantic time in your life? It was a romantic time in that way. I had totally given up on the idea of meeting anybody. I was really, in fact, scandal, gossip. I think this might be a back to mine exclusive. Yes. Um, I broke up with Carl about two months in. I just went, this is going too well. This is too comfortable, too easy, too... Are there, is this even fireworks if it's so just so lovely and warm? Um, and I I said, you know what? I just think it's not sparking for me. And it's in a way, it's a very Irish woman thing. In oh, a weird way. I'm, I'm we're sort so of thinking thick. of a Marian Keys book or something. Or a no, but like honestly, that, you know? it really does resonate for a lot of people. I read a beautiful article by Louise O'Neill recently, which yeah. which explores the same territory, just feeling safe is suddenly a, almost a threatening feeling, and it's a very weird thing. But luckily, I uh, he walked out. He walked out, but he did something. You know, he's a screenwriter, and feck him anyway. He knew exactly what to say. <laughs> he turned around on the doorstep. We were up the because we had our own entrance, but sort of up a fire escape up the back. He was just a boy shop. standing in front of a girl. He was he just a bit of it. Yeah, is it raining? He had noticed. It was London. It's torrential. Um, but so yeah, Richard Curtis can get thee behind me. But it was he turned around. And he just went. You know, he said, "I actually really want to." He said, "I want to fight for this. I think there's something really good there." But he said. I know, even in the two months, knowing you, he said, I know that if I do that, it'll push you away even further. So I'm just going to leave it with you. And he walked out and I kind of went, bleep, deleted. (laughs) Um, Spent the day going, oh my God, now I've blown it. Now I've blown it. Which was another part of the whole whole psychological mess. It's like now I've sabotaged something that was really lovely and someone who was really wonderful. Um... And uh, so I rang him about four o'clock and I said, I realise that I may have totally blown it and that this is messy and weird and annoying and crap. And I'm all of those things. But I said, I I really feel like I made a massive mistake. And if you haven't written me off completely, I would really love to try and make it up to you. I'm really sorry. And he said, I'll be over at seven. I was like, just don't put this in the screenplay, you. <laughs> that was the shortest breakup in history. Shortest breakup in history. But thank flip. I honest to God, when I look back at it now, and we're married ten years in in March. Uh, next March we'll be married ten years. And it's like 
I can't imagine, like it's just been so much fun and it's flown. He's been with me through thick and thin, through, you know, financial crisis and through uh, repeal angst and uh, and work shortages and all of that. And we've still managed to sit on the couch and have a laugh. And, you know, I said recently about the move move back to here, which is, is a smaller place, although it's not much smaller than the Muswell Hill place. We've lived in this sort of setup before, so we're well yeah, used yeah, to yeah. it. We're grand. We're just sort of settling back into that groove. Uh, but I said, you know, I hope this is all right. You've kind of gone with the flow on a lot of things based on decisions I made long, long ago. <laughs> and he said, you know what? He said, could be a cardboard box. He said, so long as you, you are okay and we're together, everything goes. And I was just like, that's you know, I hate to get smushy, but feck it, let's be sincere. Uh, I've just learned an awful lot from him. I've learned an awful lot about how to, how to love, I guess, how, what it really means, what it really means, which is that it doesn't hurt and you can mess up and that you wouldn't want to be doing it every week now. <laughs> that would be, that would be shortening a lot of fuses and, and really taking the mick. But it's, yeah, he's, he's brilliant and I'm very, very lucky to have met him. And that, and that I didn't blow it. Yeah, you didn't. That's down to him. Yeah, it is. It's his his wisdom. But you coming to your senses too was also a big part of it. Realizing, mm-hmm. yeah, in extremis, yeah. you were like, "No, I don't want to do this." Yeah. On this podcast, back to yours, we talk to people about what home means, and yeah. um, you just had a. So that was lovely what you just said about it. Could be a cardboard box. It's really yeah. the people, isn't it? And yeah. A lot of people say that. But um, you mentioned repeal, so yeah, home is Ireland, right? But yeah, you you've had, and we've talked about it before, and you know we're friends and became friends through repeal yeah. and before that, but. The sense of Ireland as home for, I suppose, dealing with all of that and the fact of being rejected because you couldn't get the medical services you needed here. Yeah. And now, thankfully, everything's sorted on that level. We still need to make sure that certain things are fixed. But yeah, for, for um, most. And yeah. we, we will work, keep working on the access that they, they, so that they nobody, need to know that the, the feet aren't coming off the pedals there. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But did that notion of home and that sense of security that home and Ireland gives you, was that challenged a lot by everything you've been through in terms of campaigning for repeal? Yes and no. Yes and no. I don't think it's any coincidence that the year I moved to London was the same year that I'd had to travel for an abortion. And I didn't feel like I lived here. And I didn't feel like Dublin was a friendly place. And at the time it wasn't. It was still Celtic Tiger times. But my work wasn't matching that sort of hysteria. So I was on a sort of a downward slide and I thought... I've got to do something to give it a shot in the arm. I've got to look into the London market. Okay, I can't do it without being there. Okay, I'll go. But part of it definitely was that it didn't feel like my home anymore. I didn't feel part of it. I didn't feel, I felt like a second class citizen. And I felt like the, the keeping of the secret became an erosion. It started to erode me. So I uh, moved to London and then a strange thing happened the crash happened here, which is one of the reasons that we moved back was that it was it was impossible to do a London rent and and Irish mortgage. And uh, we were having trouble getting anyone to to live in the flat. And it was it was just really it was just a really strange time. So we had to come back and live in it and make a go of that somehow pulling out any stops we could. But when we came back, Dublin was kind of the Dublin I remember from the early 90s. There's something about Again, I don't want to minimise people's awful, well, we've been through the same hardships and have had to make big life changes based on those. Um, We're very lucky to have somewhere to live, so I don't want to play the world's tiniest violin. We've been really, really, really lucky. But it is like Dublin became a sort of a more looking out for each other again place. Mm -hmm. At the same time as Britain, the week we left 
in 2011, uh, the week after we left was the Tottenham riots. And people sort of really cottoning on to the the Tory, the austerity, biting vulnerable communities, and that Boris Johnson wasn't anybody's pal. Yeah. That started to come out onto the streets. Mm-hmm. We just left then. Now, we didn't decide to move because of that, not at all. But then Britain became a place where being a mixed race couple and even just one of us being Irish, even though I'm white, I'm Irish, there became a less welcoming place. And at the same time, loads of people I knew, we talk about Dublin being inhospitable for artists, but loads of the people that were my neighbours are living in Yorkshire, are living in Wales, are even living in America. Around that time they moved because the rents were getting out of control. And that's, it's just... It's it's very sad to see the world going that way. It's one of the reasons I'm fighting so hard for Ireland not to go that way, for us to address racism wherever we see it. It always goes hand in hand with lots of other inequalities. It always goes hand in hand with misogyny and and virulent anti-choiceness. It, uh, it goes hand in hand with, um, often with anti-vaccine and all kinds of things that put people in direct and immediate harm. It's got to be, it's got to be addressed and I will not stand for anyone saying that fighting it or naming it what it is, is puritanical or just no crack. Because let me tell you. What about free speech, Tara? Yeah, free speech, exactly. And it's like, of course people need to have free speech, but if someone says a racist thing, I'm, I have the free speech to call it racist. This is not about looking for racism where it isn't. It's about helping people to understand. And I do a lot of it on uh, my own podcast, Taranoia, is, um, I do a lot of that work there, trying to talk to people who are directly affected. Um, and the, the being the target of racism, and it's those tiny little eroding daily things are, are as harmful in many ways, of course not as violence, but that the end game of fascism and racism is is violence or, or removal. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a huge thing. And even when someone wears a lovely suit and tries to hide that, when they're tricking people who are vulnerable and in pain to focus on immigrant, the immigrants with capital T, capital I, that's really insidious. And I'm, I'm not having that in my lovely, fantastic country that I'm so fucking proud of not having it. Well, Nor am I going to have that. We're the no crack people for pointing it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about that. So how do you feel about Ireland at the moment? To repeal the eighth, which is yep. great. We have same sex marriage and um, we are dealing with. It seems to keep keep cropping up with this this racism and people publicly, yeah. Yeah. you know, testing the water to see how far they can go. And, mm. you know. And the media has been shy. Present company accepted. But, um, you know, you've been doing, quietly doing good work, Rosine. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've been noticing. Uh, but it is like the nothing about us without us thing is really important. And so many people are not doing that and taking this detached stance, arrogant stance of, well, it's like that we have to listen to. And then when you say, well, would you have an avowed paedophile on? Would you would you have even an avowed anti-vaccination person on? No, no, that's medical danger or that's, that's you know, d- damage to, to children. And it's like, so you do have a boundary. There's a hierarchy of what's But your acceptable. boundary isn't racism. Wow. And then people say to me things like, and you've been there for some of these, Oh, you just want to save the world. Now I, I used to go, no, I'm not. I'm not that kind of goody goody. And now I go, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. Do you not? Yep. <laughs> Beep. What do you want to do? Shag it? Do you want to burn it? Yeah, I want to save the world. Not me. And I don't have like, I mean, the, the problem with being vocal in any campaign 
when you have lived experience, that's the only reason you and I got involved in that way. In a way, we, we felt sort of felt it was our duty. But like, we're not politicians and we want to get on with the rest of our lives now and but still be good citizens. Um, but it's like once you've been vocal on something like that, people assume a sort of a, they endow you with a sort of superiority complex and we're back to Cork again that we don't actually have. <laughs> what about the proudness though, the pride in Ireland and the sense of like you're here, you're back here now. Do you think this is where you're going to be? Is Ireland going to be your Definitely home? for a while. There is absolutely no question right now. I live with an American. There's no question of living in America at the moment. No question of it. Not a chance. Um, which is really sad because my husband's a proud American. But it's not an America in which he feels welcome right now because of the color of his skin. Um, uh, I I fear when he's there. I I worry. I always say, just be careful. And he's like, I I can fight my way out of things, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, no, it's not what I mean, you know. Um, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of Ireland. I I love that he loves living here. Uh, I'm very proud of all the things we have achieved at a, a moment where the world slides back, but on that pendulum and people are working on People have been watching us to see, they tried to use extreme fundamentalist conservative views. I don't even dignify them with cons the word conservative. I know plenty of conservatives who, they, they just have conservative views. They're not trying to for enforce them or force them on anyone. But this sort of fundamentalist thing that they were trying to see whether Ireland would respond to some of the stuff that had worked in Britain and America and it didn't work. Um, and it's just going to be interesting to see what happens next because they're going to push harder. That's They don't give up and go, oh, well, that's a lost cause. They just go, okay, where are the chinks in the armour? Where are the vulnerabilities and pain? And, and they're going for those and we just have to be vigilant. Okay. Before we go, give me some things you love about Ireland that you love about <gasps> Dublin, that you love about living here. Oh, I love the people, my God. I love the, I love the crack. I love the way that Irish people um, and people new to Ireland who I consider Irish, um, I love the new way. New to the parish. New have. to the parish, yeah. exactly. I love the way they just get on with it and the dark humour. I mean, everyone's kind of a comedian in Ireland because we, we take our greatest traumas and we turn them into something that we can live with. And often it's humour that does that. I love the size of the place. I love that you, you know, everybody, Carl says, the place is the size of a postage stamp. You know, <laughs> I meet people I know in cities that I've never been to. Um, that's true. He's walking down Shop Street in Galway and someone goes, Carl. And you go, he goes, oh my God, this is a, such a head wreck. But it's brilliant. It's, it, it's so physically beautiful. There's so much we have to celebrate and we just got to keep it warm and inclusive. And I think that's pretty easily done. I don't think it has to be big fights, but I do think there have to be, there have to be moments of naming when something is discrimination. And uh, we're not going to let those Egypts win. No way. This is our beautiful, gorgeous, warm, funny country. So proud of it. And uh, yeah, we're not letting it go without a fight. Tara Flynn, thank you for letting me go back to yours. <laughs> Thanks for having me in my house. <laughs> Thanks very much to the brilliant Tara Flynn and to Buffy and Jack. I'm Roisin Ingle and remember to subscribe to Back to Yours wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about this podcast. Next time, my guest on Back to Yours is Oliver Callum. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, Roisin Ingle. How's it going? Hashtag ledge back. Great to be here. Are you okay, Roisin? You look... 
<laughs> You're hyperventilating. <laughs>